0: It was October 26, 1967. John McCain, who uh, Senator John McCain, who at the time uh, was a United States Navy pilot, was shot down by a surface-to-air missile uh, over Hanoi, Vietnam. He survived the crash, survived uh, the the missile breaking off the right wing, crashing the plane, survived. But he was quickly captured and taken to a nearby prison where he spent the next five years in a Vietnamese POW camp. Now, now, two of those next five years, he lived in an isolation cell like this. This wasn't the exact one, but this is a similar cell in the prison that he was in. spent two years totally cut off from all human connection. While he was in this cell for two years, every two hours he was bound and beaten, severely tortured. He was denied basic medical treatment, had broken bones, both broken arms, had a broken leg, had severe heat exhaustion, suffered from chronic dysentery, no medical treatment. In his story, it's fascinating and, and heartbreaking and gut-wrenching all in one, but but what's interesting about it is, is as you listen to him talk about his experience, as painful as it was, he says, as painful as the, the physical pain of torture was, he said that there was something far worse than that physical pain he endured living in that cell. He said far worse than the pain was the pain of isolation. Far worse than the physical pain was the pain Of isolation this is what he said he said isolation crushes your spirit weakens your resistance more effectively than any other form of mistreatment see what he's saying there he's saying look it's not being beaten it's it's not having broken bones it's not being denied medical treatment it's isolation he says there is nothing worse than human isolation in other words It's not good to be alone. It's not good for human beings to be in isolation. It's not good to be alone. And yet, I know that's how a lot of us in this room feel. A lot of us in this room feel exactly that. We feel alone. (laughs) Google alone or lonely and you will quickly find Person after person, medical expert after medical expert, health person after health person will say that America is in the midst of what they're calling a loneliness epidemic. So I was looking up this uh, loneliness epidemic and came across some of these stats. Check this out. Two in five Americans sometimes or always feel isolated from others and that their relationships are not meaningful. One in four rarely or never feel as though there are people that really understand and connect with them. Uh, Only 53% of Americans feel that they have meaningful in-person social interactions on a daily basis. Only 53% feel that they have meaningful in-person interactions on a daily basis. And this is all Americans, but I know that this hits your generation particularly hard. Because all of the research, all of the literature that you look up, it says the exact same thing. It says this. It says, Gen Z is the loneliest generation in America. Gen Z, your generation, is the loneliest generation in the history of the United States. And by the way, this was all before the pandemic. This is all before the pandemic. Which is only what? It's only... Made the problem worse. It's only intensified the problem. It's only uh, made soaring rates of anxiety, soaring rates of depression, soaring rates of suicide. It's not good to be alone. And if you know the Bible story, you know that those words aren't mine. Those are God's words, yeah? Yeah. Because in the very beginning of the Bible, when God has created the world, when, when he's made the heavens and the earth, when he's made the light and the darkness, when he's made the land and the sky and the plants and the animals and the human beings, we read this in Genesis one thirty one. God saw all that he'd made, all that he had made, and he says it's very good. God creates and it's good. God creates and it's good. He steps back from all that he's created, and he says it's very good, except for the very next chapter of the Bible... Genesis chapter 2, we find for the first time that something's wrong. Genesis 2.18 says this. It says, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. It's not good for the man to be alone. You see, before sin and death and everything sad ever came into the world, the one thing that we're told that isn't good is human isolation." The one thing that we're told that isn't good before sin ever comes into the world is human isolation, being alone. You were made for connection with God and other people. It is not good, God says, to be alone. And the reason I'm saying all this is because it brings us to Ecclesiastes. So if you've been tracking with us the last several weeks you know that we're in a series going through the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. We're calling this series The Pursuit of Purpose. It's our way of kind of getting at what's our purpose from looking at the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. Tonight's the third night in that series, and we come to Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 1. It says this. The teacher says, again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. Great way to start, yeah? So, so he looks out, this teacher, he looks out, and what does he see? He sees injustice. He sees oppression. He sees violence. He sees inverse power dynamics. He sees people being mistreated and abused. He, says evil, he sees evil being done by evil people. And I want you to catch this because in the same way that he repeats this word, oppression, 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 in the same way that he repeats that word to emphasize its reality, he repeats something else. Did you catch it? Look at what he repeats. They have no comforter. These people being oppressed, they have no comforter. The oppressed, these victims of this oppression, these victims of this evil, they have no comforter. No one to wipe away their tears. No one to ease their pain. No one to help with their powerlessness. No one to rescue them. They are isolated and alone. It's not good. And because of that, the teacher goes on, verse 2, he says, I declared gets kind of worse before it gets better. He says, I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who's never been born, who's not seen the evil that is done under the sun. In other words, what he's saying is it's better to be dead, catch this, it's better to be dead than to be living but living in isolation. It's better to be dead than living but living alone. Better yet, he says, to have never been born. See, these verses, they're bleak, yeah? They're heavy, right? But there's truth in them. There's truth in them. It's not good to be alone. It's not good to be alone. And as heavy and bleak as these verses are, he doesn't leave us here. He doesn't just say, okay, let's close in prayer. No, he goes on, and actually what he's getting ready to do is he's getting ready to get really practical with us. He's getting ready to get down on our level, and he's getting ready to warn us. To warn us because he's going to say that there are four things, there are four things that will isolate you and me in life. It's not good to be alone. There are four things, this is what he says, there are four things that will isolate us in life. Next verse. He says, I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. See, there's this constant theme. If if, if you've read Ecclesiastes or you've been tracking with us, there's this constant theme in Ecclesiastes, this theme of human toil. We're working and working and working. We're striving and striving and striving. We're doing more, doing more, doing more. And the constant question with all this toil, with all this striving, with all this work is, is for what? But a better question is why. Why do we toil? Why do we work? Why do we strive? Well, according to this verse, it's because we envy we're motivated, we work, we strive because we envy other people. Now, if that's the point of what he's saying here, then I think we've got to ask the question, what does it mean to envy, yeah? Like, what does it mean to envy? What is envy? Well, a basic definition of envy is is desiring someone's life or some aspect of it. Desiring someone's life or or some aspect of it. That's what envy is. And envy, you know, if, if, it's closely related to, to jealousy, right? They kind of go hand in hand. They're a little different. So, so think about it like this. Uh, jealousy says, I want what you have. Envy says, I'm unhappy that you have it. Jealousy says, I want what you have. Envy says, I'm unhappy that you have it, whatever it is. You see, envy, it's a disposition towards other people. It's a disposition towards what other people have. It's an uneasiness, we might say, about the success of other people. It's a bitterness toward those who have more than us or, or a delight when people have less. And so here's a question. Do you feel envy? Like, do you Feel envy. Here's a a way of getting at that. Do you ever get frustrated by looking at your friends who are constantly in dating relationships when it seems like you can't even get a date? Do you find yourself frustrated that that your friend has a boyfriend or girlfriend and, and you don't? Do you find yourself upset when that person got that leadership position that you really wanted? Do you feel joy? You would never say this out loud, yeah? But do you feel joy when a peer fails? What about this one? Do you gossip? Do you find yourself gossiping sometimes, saying, they don't deserve that, whatever that is. They don't deserve that, but really what you're saying is, you do, I do. I deserve, they don't deserve that, I do. See, if any of that is true in your life, then what you've experienced is envy. And I'm not saying that out of, out of judgment, because the reality is, is, is we've all experienced envy, yeah? And we've all experienced envy. I mean, it's hard not to in our culture, right? We, we're constantly, that's kind of the game, right? We're constantly comparing ourselves to other people. But, but it's not just that we're comparing ourselves to our friends or, 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 or our peers. No, because of the internet, because of the social, be, the social media, it sounds so old. Because of social media, We're not just comparing ourselves to our friends. We're comparing ourselves to people all over the world, right? Celebrities, influencers, strangers, friends of friends, everybody. All of a sudden, we pull out our phone and we're instantly comparing ourselves to other people. Always. Just pull the phone out and envy. So Ethan Cross, he's a psychology professor at the University of Michigan. He says this. He says, envy is being taken to an extreme because of social media. So, so we are being constantly bombarded by, by Photoshopped lives, by carefully curated images. It's being taken to an extreme because of social media. And what is that doing to us? It's exerting a toll on us, the likes of which we've never experienced in the history of our species. And it's not particularly pleasant. And it's not particularly pleasant. Pleasant. See what he's saying there, and I think we probably know if we're honest with ourselves by experience, envy makes us miserable. Envy makes us, it doesn't feel good at all. It makes us miserable, doesn't it? I mean, if you know what envy is like, and I'm sure you do, you know that it makes you miserable. It makes you always want more. It makes you constantly comparing yourself. It makes you constantly discontent. It's hard to be happy when we look out and it seems like everybody else has a better life than us. It's hard to be happy when we look out and it seems like everybody else has the things that we want. It's hard to be happy. Envy, it makes us feel worse about ourselves because we are the ones who want to be noticed. When we envy other people, it makes us feel worse because I want the attention. I want someone to notice me. Which is why, back to Ecclesiastes, the teacher is saying that we work and work and work because we're motivated By envy. He says we work and we work and we work. And we gain what? We gain achievement, sure. But at what cost? We work and we work and we're... You strive and you strive and you strive. You toil and you toil and you toil. But at what cost? He says the cost is isolation because envy isolates you. It isolates you. It severs the connection with other people that you were made for. When we envy, what it really does... what we're really saying is that life is all about me, right? Life is, when I envy you, what I'm really saying is life is all about me. And when I'm unhappy and it's just me, I'm all alone. Envy, the teacher says, will isolate you. The second thing that will isolate you is this. Next verse. Yes. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. So what he's saying here is he's talking about laziness. He's talking about laziness. So another translation, the ESV, it says it like this. It says, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. What? The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Super weird, really extreme. Why? Well, he's illustrating a point here. Remember, throughout Ecclesiastes, he uses kind of hyperbole, right? He's using dramatic language to prove a point. He's saying with this verse that laziness, we don't think about it like this, but he's saying that laziness leads to our ruin. Laziness will lead to ruin. He says instead of working hard, giving ourselves to other people, the lazy person really just gives to themselves. And in the same way we make envy all about us, life is all about me, laziness, in reality, it makes life all about us too. In the end, all he's left with is himself and eating himself. Super weird, right? He's isolated and alone, eating himself to survive. Now, I know for a fact, well, I shouldn't say I know for a fact. I'm guessing that none of you have ever seen a human being eat another human being, right? You've not seen that. But I wonder, I wonder, I really hope that's true. I wonder if maybe what you have seen is the way that laziness, not instantly, not with a flip of a switch, but over time, the way that laziness erodes self-control, Maybe you've experienced that in your own life, the way that that laziness erodes your self-control. You had discipline, but your laziness, it eroded that self-control. I wonder if maybe that you've seen that the the way that laziness over time, it diminishes your capacity to care about other people and yourself. I I wonder if you've seen the ways that laziness over time erases your self-respect. You see, that's what it does. It, it erodes our self-control. It diminishes our capacity to care about other people and ourselves. And it erases self-respect. And so here's a question. Do you struggle with laziness? Do you struggle with laziness? See, I think it's interesting that, that we're asking that question or that Ecclesiastes is bringing it up. Because I think sometimes in college, we, we almost elevate laziness as if it's a virtue, right? Right? So, so the way that this plays out or w- the way that it played out in my life when I was in college is I had a really hard day, so I deserved to sleep in the next day. I had a really hard week, so I deserved to, to not do anything for the weekend. I had a really hard first half of the semester, so I go home for spring break and I just veg on the couch all week. I had a really hard semester, and so all I did all summer was sleep until noon and go to the pool. Now, I'm not saying sleeping in. I'm not saying rest. I'm not saying any of those things. Certainly not going to the pool. None of that's bad or wrong. But what I am saying is we tend to think that that laziness is kind of cutesy. It's no big deal. But the Bible actually says it is a big deal. The Bible says that it's actually a really big deal because what laziness will eventually do. You're not going to feel it right away. But what laziness will eventually do in your life, it will isolate you. It will make you alone. And it will lead not just to loneliness but to your ruin. It will lead to your ruin. Third, no better Than laziness is kind of the opposite extreme next verse better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind what's he talking about see the negative opposite of laziness is what busyness That's what he's talking about. He's talking about busyness. He's saying better to have one handful with tranquility, better to have one handful of of peace than, than two handfuls of busyness, two handfuls of striving, two handfuls of nonstop toil. We know people like that, yeah? You know people like that. People who can't stop, they're always busy. People who are constantly running to one thing to the next. They're go, 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 go. People who are constantly unavailable, why? Because they're too busy. They can't spend time because they're too busy. Can't make commitments because they're too busy. We all know people like that. But here's the question, is that you? See, maybe that's, maybe that's you. Maybe, maybe you're the busy one. You're the, the one that, that can't stop. You're the one that can never make a commitment. You're the one that is never available because you're too busy and you're finding your identity in it. There's a warning here. There's a warning here. It makes me think of uh, something that John Mark Comer said in his fantastic book, The Ruthless, it's a hard word to say, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Uh, he, he says this, it's a little long, but it's good. He says this, he says, do you ever catch yourself with the sneaking suspicion that you'll wake up on your deathbed with this nagging sense that somehow, in all the hurriness and frenetic activity, you miss the most important things? Somehow, you started a business but ended a marriage. You got your kids to their dream college, but never taught them the way of Jesus. You got letters after your name, but learned the hard way that intelligence isn't the same as wisdom. You made a lot of money, but never grew rich in the things that matter most. You watched all 14 seasons of blank, but never learned to love prayer. See, I know he's talking about a lot of things that you're like, bro, I am not down that train yet, right? Down that train? Down that trail? You're... You're not thinking about some of that yet, right? But the point is that there's a lot of wisdom in what he's saying, right? There's a lot of future wisdom there for you. He's saying that, that busyness, for busyness's sake, it's like a bottomless pit, right? Busyness, it just leaves you with this sense that, that you can't stop, that there's always something more. There's always something more to do. There's always something else to do. Striving and striving, striving, toiling, toiling, one thing to the next. Can't stop. And because of that, in the midst of our busyness, he says that we miss the most important things. See, that's what Ecclesiastes is saying to us, that busyness is its own form of isolation. Busyness is its own form of... Of isolation some of you in this room you need to hear this you need to hear what Ecclesiastes said you need to stop chasing the wind you need to rest you need peace you need to connect more with people because all of those things are far more important than busyness all of those things are far more important than striving and striving and striving and toiling and toiling and toiling striving is not bad busyness is not wrong but if it's busyness for busyness's sake you need to stop chasing the wind. You need to rest. You need to find peace. And you need to connect with other people. Last one. This is again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asks, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This, too, is meaningless, a miserable business. Again, it's just kind of this vivid image for us, right? It's this vivid illustration. It's kind of a story that's well-known in our culture. The man at the top, maybe the woman at the top, but utterly alone. No children, no family, no friends, only companion is work and wealth But it's not enough. It's not enough. Elon Musk is the only, well, one of the only people in the history of the world to start four separate billion-dollar companies. Four separate billion-dollar companies. And yet, he did an interview a couple years ago with Rolling Stone. And after a divorce with his ex-wife and breakup with his actress girlfriend, he says this. He says, being in a big empty house and no footsteps echoing through the hallways, no one over there. How do you make yourself happy in a situation like that? When I was a child, there was one thing that I would say to myself, I never want to be alone. I never want to be alone. He's doing an interview. The interviewer writes that, that after he said that, he kind of trailed off and said it again to himself. I never, I never want to be alone. And yet, that's exactly what he was, right? It's exactly what he was wealthy, but not healthy. Alone and lonely. Possessing everything except joy. Toiling because of his discontentment. Toiling, working, never content. All alone. Isolated. In a big house, completely empty. It's lonely. So here's a question. Where are you discontent? Where is discontentment motivating you in life? So how is your discontentment driving you to do more, to want more, to strive more? Here's a different question. How is that actually making you, how is that not helping but making things worse? How is that making you feel alone? You see, what Ecclesiastes is teaching us is that discontentment is isolating. It's isolating. And so let me summarize real quick just the four different things that we looked at. Four things that will isolate us in life according to Ecclesiastes. Envy, laziness, busyness, discontentment. Envy, laziness, busyness, discontentment. Four things that will certainly isolate us in life. And I want you to catch this. What is the center of all these things? What are they all built around? Me? You? Us? Right? Right? Life is all about me. That's why I'm unhappy that you have the thing. Life is all about me, so I'm not motivated to do much of anything. Life is all about me, so I'm going to be busy and busy and busy and busy. Life is all about me, and so I'm discontent, and I'm going to let that motivate me to work harder and harder and harder, except it just makes me more and more empty and alone. It's not good, the Bible says, to be alone. It's not good to be alone, which is why he goes where he goes right after this. After all that we've read, after all we've talked about, this is how he ends this part of this passage. He says this, Ecclesiastes 4 verse 9, he says, "...two are better than one, because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up, but pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone?" Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. See, the moral of the story is that living for we is better than living for me. Living for me isolates me. Living for we is what leads to my flourishing, what leads to your flourishing. He's saying that life is better together. It's what God created us for. It's what God created you for. You were made for connection with God and other people. That's what you were made for. But here's the thing. I want you to catch this. If you checked out, I want you to look at me. The enemy knows that. The enemy knows that you were made for connection with God and other people. He knows it. See, the Bible, it teaches us that we have an enemy, and that enemy knows that we were created for connection. And so let me go back to that John McCain quote real quick. I want you to read it again. I want you to look at it with me. He says, isolation crushes your spirit, weakens your resistance more effectively than any other form of mistreatment. You see, John McCain, he's talking about a POW camp, yeah? But it's the perfect example of what the enemy wants to do in your life. It's the perfect example of what the enemy wants to do in my life. He wants to isolate you. He wants to isolate us. He wants you to be envious. He wants you to be lazy. He wants you to be busy. He wants you to be discontent. He wants to isolate you and make you all alone in order to what? To crush your spirit and weaken your resistance against him that's what the enemy wants to do in your life it's not good to be alone you see you and I we can't live the Christian life by ourselves we can't do it on our own some of us are trying it's not going to work we can't live the Christian life alone we need each other we need to live life alongside other people who really know us and people we really know. We need people in the ups and the downs, the good and the bad. We need people that challenge us, people that encourage us, people that help us grow in our love for Jesus. And so my prayer for us tonight and moving forward is that we would be those kind of people, that this would be that kind of space, a space where, where people gather out of a commitment to loving Jesus, a commitment to loving each other in spite of the mess. Relationships are messy, yeah. Sometimes it's hard to be in connection with other people. Relationships are messy. It's hard. But my prayer is that that's what we would be, that we would be a community of people committed to each other, that you would be so committed to each other that you would not leave this place without talking to someone you don't know. That you would be so committed to each other that you would not come to this place without saying hi to someone and talking longer. That this would be a place. This would be a people. This is why we need the church. That we would be a place where people are committed to each other because of a collective love for Jesus and a growing desire to resist our enemy. for you. That's what God wants. Living for we is better than living for me. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I, I, I thank you for my friends here tonight and I thank you for this reminder that it's not good to be alone. I know many of us probably feel alone. I know that you know far more than I'll ever know how we really feel. Jesus, I, as Kate said, or someone said earlier, for whatever reason, you've brought us here tonight. This was not an accident. It was not a happenstance that I came tonight, that they came tonight. You brought us here for a reason, and I pray that your word, it would seep deep into our hearts. Jesus, help us to be committed to each other. Help us to be committed to you. Help us to resist our enemy together. It's in your name we pray.